Good morning. How are we doing? Decent. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jesse. Uh, I'm on staff here. I'm a deacon uh, at church, and I'm excited because uh, I love the summer. It's hot outside, but it's a little cool in here. I almost wore my Chacos today, but I, you know, because Chris wasn't here, and I was like, I can get away with this today, but my wife, bless her heart, was like, no. So here I am, and you can't see my toes, so be thankful, but... Anyways, uh, we live in a world that is partial, or a world that picks favorites, depending on your, your social status, your income, your ethnicity, your job, etc., etc., etc. The world puts you into a hierarchy. We have the rich and the poor. We have the educated and the uneducated, the cool and the uncool, those who fit in, those who don't. And there are multitudes of nuances, I know, within all these categories. So I don't want to just generalize. What I want to get across is that in a world stained with sin and with brokenness, there is a man-made stratification of who matters and who doesn't. And people struggle with showing favoritism all of the time to those who appear different to them. So today we have a passage that is going to address this issue, and it's one of those classic James segments that just kind of grabs you by the collar, slaps you around a little bit, and it reminds you that we desperately need a Savior. So we're going to dive right in today, continuing along in James, and we're going to be in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So if you all want to stand with me as we read from God's Word... That can be found on page 1011, yeah, Uh, in those black ESV Bibles on your row. If you don't have a Bible, please, uh, we have some out on the connection table that you can take. Um, We'd love to give you that. So let's read. It says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this day, uh, just for a chance to gather together uh, and to worship you. I pray that as we move through this letter of James, you would speak just by the power of your Holy Spirit to everybody in here today. Help us to learn. Help us to, uh, to be edified by your word. And I just pray that you would move us to action when we leave from here. And all this I pray is in Christ's name. Amen. You can have a seat. So here's kind of where I want to go this morning as we work through this passage. Um, I'm going to give a quick recap, kind of what got us to this point 
in, in James, and then we'll proceed with a few main points, and those are going to be what is the sin of partiality that we're talking about here, and what do we glorify. So where are we now in James? In the last few weeks of James, we've been learning what constitutes true religion. True religion is what is shown in the outworking of a changed heart, meaning that once someone has been gripped by the good news of Jesus Christ and put their faith in him, there is an outward, there is an inward transformation, and this faith is shown, and even, if we want to say it, proven by the works that come as we are going. One cannot just say they believe and not have that line up with the way they're living their life. I can't just say, oh, I'm a runner and I love running, but never go out and actually lace up my shoes and run. In James 1.26, just a few verses up that we, were, that we were learning about last week, we get an example of this with regards to claiming faith in Jesus. He says that if someone thinks they're religious and does not bridle their tongue, then that person's religion is worthless. So James is saying that what comes out of our mouth is clear proof of where our hearts are. We are deceiving ourselves if we think we are doing it right, but we can't even keep a hold on our tongue. Even if we don't say these certain things in front, maybe, of people directly, they get out one way or another because we're always whispering behind closed doors or to our friends. True religion we see in 127, James 127, is to visit orphans and widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James says that if you claim Jesus and that you follow him, then your actions had better be proving that or showing that God is a holy God who does not delight in sin or in things that are outside of his design. So to claim to have faith in Jesus means that we had better care about the oppressed and the poor, social justice. These are not things or these are the things that constitute pure and undefiled religion before God, not just showing up on Sundays doing the bare minimum and not just consuming what we offer here. Pure religion flows out of a changed heart, a heart that has been gripped by the mercy of God. But before we start worrying too much about all of these things that we should be doing and uh, the ways in which we fall short, we have to remember that doing these things does not save you. Whether you have not put your faith in Christ, or you have, and you believe that he lived the perfect life that you couldn't and died the death you deserve for your sin, no amount of good deeds can save you. Only the work of Christ does that. So as we move through James, don't hear that we have a works-based righteousness, meaning that we have to do enough to be good before God. Only in Christ can we stand justified before God. And we can't remind ourselves of that enough as we move through this, this text. But there are some tests, some outward fruits to examine, to determine if you really are abiding in what Christ has done. Some of those things we have learned thus far are being conscious of what's coming at your mouth, being concerned about the oppressed and the marginalized, and being aware of what is staining us in the world. But James moves on, and this is where we get to where we're at today in James 2, and we see that true religion comes from an inward change and then has outward fruit. But now James is going to start to examine the inward fruit to show us that the real issue is a heart issue. 
not a religious one. James is trying to get us to start to realize the difference between the outward display and the reality of what really is happening inside and that that is the most important. That's why he moves on and he addresses the issue of faith here in James 2 and he leaves religion out of it. So I'm going to read it one more time. Just James uh, James 2, 1 through 4. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? So what we have here is partiality is the word. It means favoritism also. That's the same thing. That's what's being shown. There's a guy who walks in, and he's got some nice clothes on. And then a poor man walks in, and they describe him as being shabby. And we see that attention is paid to the man wearing the nice things. And he's given the finest seat, while the poor man is just told to sit down at the person's feet or stand up to the side. James says we have made distinctions. They have become judges with evil thoughts. This is the sin of partiality. It is judging and basing our treatment of someone purely off of externals. What James is addressing here are the judgments we make about people before we even know them and the actions we take or we don't take towards them. So we make a decision after we look at them and we move on. And he's talking mainly here just about the rich and the poor because that's been around forever. But this moves into all sorts of groups of people like race and ethnicity. And he's not saying that we can't be conscious, though, of certain things. For example, if there, if we, we're not packed at all in here today. It's the summer. Welcome to Redeemer in the summer. But if we had one seat left in this whole entire sanctuary, and at, at the beginning of the service, an elderly woman and a young guy walk in, At the same time, it would not be wrong of us. It would not be showing favoritism to give the last seat to the elderly woman. We wouldn't just say, "Ah, no, we're not going to judge you based off your looks. You can go stand in the back. (laughs) That's not wrong. Favoritism would be finding someone who, by worldly standards, seems important and devoting attention to them and brushing aside others who don't seem to meet these standards. Or maybe there isn't even someone who seems to be wealthy or important, but we simply just don't acknowledge the individual who seems different. I think that we all struggle with this to some extent. I know I do. Our society puts such emphasis on money and power and status, outward beauty, and that affects us in ways that we may not even know yet, It's just implicit. Here's a brief example. A couple of them. Go to a gym. (laughs) Or some sort of place where there is physical competition. You you walk in and people are flexing all over the place. We've seen it at uh, the SRSC or the YMCA. Hoosier Heights Climbing Gym. I see it all the time. I do it, I'll be honest. And the... (laughs) I... I walk in, right, and I'm immediately sizing everybody up, and I'm like, all right, 
Who's the stud in here? I know someone in here is going to be stronger than me, but that's okay. Who am I stronger than? Who can I compare myself to? I'll bet that guy can bench 400, but I bet I can run faster, you know? So, or the classic grade school gym example, right? Who's going to get picked for the team? Who's not? Is the new kid cool enough to fit in? How many fidget spinners does he have? I th- I don't understand those, but I'm not, I'm not even going to go there. We have, what I'm trying to get at is we have social constructs built into our heads that the world has created, and we have given into, that put a hierarchy on who or what is important. Now, those are some silly examples, but there are ones that are very prevalent in our culture, and some that are prevalent even in, in our churches. I think money in the culture at large is one of those. Having money is kind of like a test of who is important or also who has influence or high social status. And I think that's why James uses that example because it is the most, uh, not always obvious, but it can be very clear and it's been around since the time of Jesus, obviously. Another thing that falls under the social status umbrella would be celebrities. We have a horrible celebrity culture. We elevate individuals to godlike status in our heads, and this is a problem in the church, in churches. They can be personality-driven and not gospel-driven, and they will crumble. Unfortunately, we've seen it. If you base what you like or you dislike based off of just a person's personality and not Christ, that's going to come through. Chances are we would get really excited if we have the opportunity to get to know someone who has a high social status or they have some type of power as well-known because we want to be associated with them, right? Because then the world will maybe include us with them and put us higher up on a pedestal. It can be much harder to associate with those who seem unimportant or marginalized because what's the benefit, really, of knowing, knowing them? Or maybe people who are just different than us we have trouble getting to know. It's not always because we're explicitly against them, but the root of favoritism is not always just the sin of feeling and desiring to be superior to others. Sometimes it's just simply that we're oblivious or we're apathetic. We operate in our comfortable bubbles and circles and anything outside of that we kind of just keep away. Again, not because we do it maliciously. We just don't even open our eyes to what is around us. So what James is getting at here in chapter 2 is an attitude problem. It's something that we as a church have to be on guard against. We cannot image the body of Christ if we have our eyes open to those who only have our eyes open to those who are important by worldly standards. Or those who we think would fit in. Or those who we're comfortable with. But why is that sinful? Judging people just based solely off of externals. Because we're called clearly in scripture to not be judges and then we in our heart and with our actions operate as if some people are more important than others that is why it is sin 
We place importance in things that are in opposition to what God finds important. God does not see importance in what the world sees as important. So the question we have to ask ourselves, and where I want to sit for the majority really of the time, is what do we glorify? Let's look back at verse 1. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I think it's interesting here that James gives this description of Jesus because there are numerous ways to describe him. The Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Word of God, Bread of Life, The Way, The Truth, The Life, The Good Shepherd, and the list goes on and on. But he chooses the Lord of Glory. And what he is saying here is don't show partiality as you hold faith in Jesus, the one who displays and is God's glory. How is Jesus God's glory? We can't just make that jump logically, right? To see this, let's look. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 33, 18 through 19, and it should be up here. And Moses here in this example, he's sad at the state of Israel and its history. And... He is praying to God, and it says this. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God, he, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And then fast forward a little bit to Exodus 34, 5 through 8. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. The name of the Lord, we see here, is not so much a description of just who God is, but of what he is. Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, I'm going to come and show you my nature and my goodness. Then Moses asked to, when Moses asked to see God's glory, God shows him himself and what he's like. Now Jesus is God. The same as God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Spirit? Spirit. And we see in John, John, Gospel of John 1.14, it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, God in the flesh, God's glory came to us in all of God's goodness and in the full revelation of his person. So Jesus Christ, James is reminding us subtly, is the one who we are called to glorify. He is our Lord of glory, not the world. We don't glorify what the world says to glorify as our ultimate treasure. We are to make distinctions in the way that Christ would make them, not the way the world does. 
That's what James is getting at with all of this partiality talk. We must not judge based off of how the world and worldly institutions would judge. But why? Because we don't want to glorify what the world does. It robs Christ, the Lord of glory, of his glory. The way the world judges goes directly against the ways of God. It says, continue to accumulate and have things. That's what's worth glorifying. We see in 2 Corinthians 8-9, Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus became poor in every material sense of the word, and he took on flesh, and in his flesh he didn't strive for riches. The world says be powerful, Christ says be Blessed are the meek and the humble. The world says, be comfortable. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. So please don't hear me saying, though, that it's wrong to have money or power. That's not wrong. I'm not advocating a poverty gospel, meaning that you have to just literally sell all your things or Christ is not going to accept you. I think there's a place, actually, for wealth in Christian circles as long as we steward it well into God's glory. What I'm saying, though, is that we can't idolize these things. Cannot make them of the utmost importance over God's glory. And we should recognize, though, how God likes to work in the world and build his kingdom. He works in ways that are so opposite of the way that we think. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. It says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? I like verse 5, but to be honest, it scares me a little bit. Scripture does not say that people with money will not be saved at all. But it is clear that the rich are in danger of becoming self-sufficient. We're going to learn that as we go through James. There's a danger of discomfort in the idea that we are okay on our own and that we don't need anybody else. Everything is taken care of. We got it all together. But we are called to always rely ultimately on Jesus. It's hard to do this when we seem so self-sufficient, but we need to rely on the provision of God and the comfort that comes from knowing that Jesus loves and cares for us and has made us rich in faith and granted us entrance into the kingdom of God, which lasts so much longer than just our bank accounts. It's amazing how God uses the poor and the marginalized to show the world that money means nothing and power means nothing ultimately. The Bible is filled with people who in the world's eyes and by worldly standards should probably have never accomplished much. The early church is a great example. There's no way 
that they had any worldly power working for them. We were talking about a group of people who were not super wealthy and had all the powers that be against them. But God just poured out his Holy Spirit. And he built his kingdom. And it has continued since, all the way up until this day, and we're still seeing it. We've talked about it before, but the global south, right, is booming, which is awesome. Westernized culture seems to be very powerful and have a lot of influence, but God is working in places that we don't even think about, in places that aren't considered that important or influential, places that know they are not self-sufficient. There's an epidemic of churches becoming worldly. Too often money uh, does a lot of talking in our society, in the culture at large, and we have to oppose this. We act politically. You know, what, you know what I'm talking about there. We make petty issues big, and we neglect loving one another and laying down preferences for the good of the body. We gossip, we slander, treat it like a social club. We consume and consume and consume, and we say, if I don't like that, I'm out. What can I take from here and from there? And it's something that we're not immune to, even here at Redeemer. I have some good friends who have a church up, on, uh, up in India on the, on the near east side of Indianapolis. And if you know anything about Indianapolis, that section of the city is uh, it's a rough part of town for a lot of reasons. And many people there are not considered super important by the worldly standards. And my friend who's a pastor there who can preach like nobody's business he used to come up to the churches around where I grew up, up on the north side of Indy, and he would uh, just kind of guest preach because they received some support uh, financially and also in the ways that um, people would come down and serve at his church. And I was talking to someone one day after he came to one of these churches, and the pastor had come and preached, and we were just talking about, man, that guy, he can bring it. And he challenges us to no end. We would be challenged to really, really live out our faith, not just nominally, but do what the word says, like James is saying here. And the guy I was talking with commented on how, ah, I didn't really like some of the stuff he was saying, though. And that he shouldn't really come up and challenge people like that with these hard truths, because that could mean that maybe people would get offended and threaten their funding, or maybe even pull it. As if the churches on the north side of Indy were the ones who would determine whether or not this Indy church would fail or would succeed. As if he should zoom over hard topics and not risk offense for the fear that they may have their funding pulled. Even then, that was a little unsettling as a teenager. I was like, oh, I don't know about that guy. (laughs) But let's be honest. We say, hey, we would never do that. But these worldly mindsets do creep in in other ways. And that's scary because when these things come into our communities, God is not glorified. Man is glorified. We see in this passage some of the irony that James loves to give us. He loves to give us ironic things. He says that the rich are the ones who are oppressing you. They're the ones dragging you into court. They're blaspheming the honorable name by which you have been called. So we see that God does not make 
important, what the world makes important. And when we look to worldly things for ultimate importance, God is not glorified. We slip into partiality, favoritism. We dishonor those who are made in God's image. We see in verse 6, all people are created in God's image. And when we elevate those above others, that's dishonoring. So the big question that this passage is getting at, as we move into James where we examine where our hearts are actually at, is what do we glorify? Our attitudes and actions will reveal what we glorify. Do you tend to think that the best things in life worth achieving are status, and money, power, comfort, Or do you recognize what Christ has done? Do you rest in his glory? Partiality comes from two places. Either you're craving and seeking after human glory. That's why you would be partial to those who could give you a leg up, because they're going to help you. You crave that glory. Or you're in fear. And you show partiality towards those who are going to make you feel safer. But if you know Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory, if you trust that he is gloriously strong, gloriously loving, and wise, your protector and your savior, then you do not have to crave after human glory at all. It's easier said than done. And like I said earlier, James can be tricky. This letter can be tricky. Because it gives you so many practical tests to see if you're living up to the standards that God would have for you, and you can fall into one of two camps. I like to say you can fall off a horse on either side. That's the best analogy I can think of. You can take the letter and feel self-righteous and be like, man, I got this under control. These Pharisees, these smart, theologically-minded fools, they, they think they know what they're talking about, but they don't actually live it out. Or you can read it and feel like, you have to do all these things. I've got to do it all. I've got to do it perfectly. Like when I leave my seat here, I'm going to go out. I'm not going to be partial. I'm not going to show favoritism. I'm going to love everybody I see. Neither of these thoughts are what James wants you to have. He wants to remind us that we already have someone who fulfilled all we need to fulfill. Yes, we must not just hear the word of God. We must also do the word of God. It must move us to action. But you can't do it perfectly. You're not going to. You're going to walk out these doors and you're going to sin. I'll give you 30 minutes. If you're lucky. (laughs) So don't be discouraged if either today or as we continue through this letter, you feel like you aren't measuring up. Or that you have to do all of these things to be okay in God's eyes. Hear the gospel. Jesus Christ came as fully human and fully God and revealed the glory of God. He lived the perfect life that you can never live on your own and he died the death that you deserve and he rose again and he is sitting now in heaven and one day is going to come back And he's going to make all things new. There will be no division. Material things as we know it will mean nothing. And his glory will fill the heavens and the earth. If you know and have made Jesus your Lord and Savior, you can be free from needing to show 
favoritism. There's no need to worry about what the world claims is important. No need to make decisions based solely on what is comfortable or meets your needs. You can be free to see that God has made all people, all people, in his image. We are called to view the world the way he does. You can strive to glorify him, not things of the earth. So if you're here today, though, and you don't know Jesus... I hope that you see that you can't do enough good in this life to be okay for God. You can't do enough outward things. You sure as heck can't do enough outward things with the right intentions inside. Jesus is the only perfect one and the only one who can free you from the burden of sin in your life. It's a freeing thing to glory in God and not in the world. So we're going to move now into our time of communion. This is where we reflect on and we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. The bread here is a symbol of his body that is broken for us. And the juice or the wine represents his blood that was shed for us and covers us and washes us clean. It's a symbol that is meant for those who have accepted Christ. So if, if, you, uh, if you haven't yet, then I invite you to do so now. In the back, we're going to have some pastors. And right around the corner, we have prayer responders who would love to pray for you. Please take advantage of that. Or if you just want to go and just pray with someone, they're there. That's a great opportunity. Here at Redeemer, we take communion by tearing off a piece of bread, dipping it in the cup. We have juice and wine to take however your conscience leads you. The wine is in the one marked with twine. I doubt we're going to have a problem today with congestion here. But if we do... We, we can get past this Midwestern thing where we just like won't get in anybody's way. You can slide through and say, excuse me, I, we're not going to kick you out for that, okay? I just, I've been waiting to say that, I'm sorry. So, anyways, let's pray. Father God, I thank you again uh, just for an opportunity to, uh, to be here, to be able to learn about you, to dive into your word, Lord, James is a hard book. But I pray that as we continue to walk through this letter, you would free us from any thought of thinking we have to do things perfectly to achieve justification in your eyes because Christ has done it all. And I pray that you help us to remember that, help that to move us to outward deeds, but I pray that inwardly, We would be abiding in you and what Jesus has done for us in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Thank you again just for this day, for the beauty, for the summer, uh, and just ask that you would be with us as we go from here. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.